Hi, I'm Mitch. And I'm Matt. This is Policy Talks. Welcome to Policy Talks, a show diving into all things related to policy analysis in international affairs. Well, fall is upon us, and we're beginning our new session here at Policy Talks. We've had a few changes, uh, as you may have just heard. I am joined in the studio today uh, with a new co-host, Matt Potter, who uh, we've kind of uh, thrown right into this. He originally joined our team as a researcher for this episode and maybe future episodes. I'm not going to put any pressure on you. Uh, he's co-hosting with me. So, Matt, I got to say thank you very much for stepping up to the plate. No, thanks for having me. Uh, we'll see how it goes tonight, and then uh, I suppose that will dictate how things go from then. Today's topic is terrorism and Canadian national security. Um, we'll be examining the international and domestic uh, dimensions of the issue. And I, and I think in this topic, from from the perspective of Canadians, maybe not at the forefront of the discourse in international affairs uh, on a constant level, at least compared to our neighbors to the south, um, which may be something that we, we take for granted and a, and a privilege uh, to... Uh, to be in that situation, but something that I think is always is always around and, and it comes to the forefront in certain instances, such as the attacks that we had in Ottawa and Saint-Jean-de-Sur-Richelieu in October of 2014. We had the events in Strathroy, Ontario, just this past August, um, and even in internationally abroad. Um, we had the kidnappings of Canadians in the Philippines um, a year ago, uh, and uh, even more recently in January of this year, we had an attack on a, on a hotel in Burkina Faso. Uh, so something that, that when these events happen, it brings to the fore questions about Canada's role in, in combating terrorism and, and Canadian national security more broadly. Um, uh, and, and if what we're doing um, is, is uh, uh, proper or, or if we're doing enough, we're doing the right things um, to address some of these issues. Sort of is our response proportional to the threat we actually do face. Exactly. Um, to help us dive into these issues this week, we're fortunate enough to have two guests to cover our topic on terrorism and Canadian national security. Um, with us today is Professor Jez Littlewood. Uh, professor Littlewood is an assistant professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. And since joining the school in 2007, he's taught courses on a wide range of subjects, such as terrorism, national security, intelligence, and arms control. Professor Littlewood's research interests encompass uh, proliferation and counter-proliferation of WMD, or weapons of mass destruction, terrorism, and international security. Prior work experience includes serving as an advisor to both the counter-proliferation department of the UK Foreign and Commonwealth Office and the United Nations Department for Disarmament Affairs. We're also joined in the studio today with, uh, by Professor Craig Forces. Uh, professor Forces is a full professor at the University of Ottawa's Faculty of Law where he teaches courses on subjects such as administrative law and national security law. He completed his Master of Laws degree at Yale and is a member of the Bars of Ontario, New York, and the District of Columbia. Professor Forsey's current research is focused on the subjects of international law, national security, human rights, and democratic accountability. He's the author of the book National Security Law, Canadian Practice and International Perspective, and has also co-authored the book uh, False Security, the radicalization of Canadian anti-terrorism. So a special thanks to both professors for coming on the show. Uh, so we're just going to jump right in. And we wanted to begin by first taking a look at Canada's efforts to fight terrorism abroad. So the international dimension of terrorism. Um, with the Syrian crisis and the rise of new groups like Islamic State, there seems to have been an increase in terrorist activity that directly affects Canada and its allies. So could you give us a brief overview of uh, Canada's top concerns abroad at the moment? I think the top concerns at the moment, the priority, at least in terms of focus, is playing the role within the coalition against the Islamic State <clears throat> and making those, those contributions in terms of providing support on the ground, training. We have special forces personnel on the ground, 
and uh, support to the, the air operations in terms of providing intelligence or using our intelligence assets in the air. But the interests also, or the requirements also go further than that. As you hinted in, in the introduction, we've had incidents that directly affect Canadians in the Philippines, in Burkina Faso, and in other countries. And so Canada's efforts are not focused solely on a particular given area. From the government's perspective, the, the simple protection of Canadians abroad in, and this threat level involves a very wide geographic area in the sense of what we know from terrorism. There's always a risk that Canadians will be directly targeted or indirectly targeted as a result of an attack. Kind of building off that, um, would you say that it's important to differentiate between terrorist groups in regards to their scope of ambition? So, for example, we have the Taliban in Afghanistan, there's al-Shabaab in Somalia, and Jabhat Fateh al-Sham in Syria, which actually rebranded from the al-Qaeda-linked al-Nusra Front. And these groups arguably have a more regional outlook, uh, which in turn is reflected in their activities. So do you believe that perhaps our politicians, the media, have a tendency to conflate these groups with uh, you know, more ambitious groups like Islamic State, and in the process perhaps misconstrue the domestic threat that they pose in the process? Yes, it's a big challenge in terms of getting people to both accept but un equally understand that counterterrorism in its pure form, for want of a better terminology, is really focused on, on groups which are probably fairly small. They certainly don't hold territory uh, and have a either a very localized or national agenda. Whereas if you look at insurgent groups, which are usually much larger, and here we might think about Hezbollah or Hamas, Islamic State, uh, Taliban, they're, op they're operating in an environment where it's not just terrorism that they're doing. They have other political objectives. They may be involved in social services as well. And so linking all these kinds of operations under the rubric of counterterrorism becomes problematic um, because some of it is beyond counterterrorism per se in counterinsurgency, including uh, efforts to help countries you know, build their own capacity and deal with these issues. So there is always a risk that counterterrorism as a term embraces and conflates a lot of very different kind of security challenges. Keeping with the, the, the idea of talking more broadly about, about this topic, uh, what are, what are the, the, the policies that the Canada is currently implementing abroad? I assume it would be a, a suite of, of different policies that, that, that is context-specific, but for, for, for the listeners, what does, what does Canadian action um, towards terrorism uh, and, and national security, uh, internationally speaking, what does that look like? What does that translate to in the, in the policy decisions that we're making? Well, I think there's several dimensions to that. Uh, so, so there's certainly some discussion and some participation in training and capacity building in terms of anti-terrorism in other jurisdictions um, under the envelope perhaps of bilateral relations between our security services and their counterparts in other jurisdictions and in other forms of overseas direct uh, assistance. I think also part of our contribution lies in terms of the assets we can leverage, I think as Jez mentioned, in support of uh, collective anti-terrorism. And so, for example, information sharing or intelligence sharing, the, the information that might be extracted from intelligence sources by, for example, the communications security establishment that's fed into the Five Eyes network that then becomes uh, fodder for action by the Five Eyes states or close allies. So there's intelligence assets that can be quite important. And certainly in the context of, say, the Afghan conflict, you would you would make the point that CSE, communications security establishment, was a pretty important player. I imagine they're also a fairly important player in places like Syria. I think it's also important to recognize that it's that, that even in relation to insurgencies slash terrorist groups that are operating internationally, there can be a Canadian dimension that pertains not just to domestic security but also international security. And so the current preoccupation, for example, with foreign terrorist fighters. If you take ISIS, a substantial number of persons, mostly from continental Europe, but, but also a, a fairly remarkable number of individuals from Canada, depending on whose numbers you look at, as many as 100 persons from Canada have joined ISIS to participate in some sort of terrorist-related activities. 
So those persons are posing a direct res- risk overseas uh, in terms of their actions. But uh, I-, I think one of the fears that consumes our security services is, is the prospect that upon return, they will pose a domestic security risk. So these, there, there is a link, in other words, between the foreign and domestic. And I think that incentivizes the Canadian participation in a lot of uh, international anti-terrorism activities. Now, perhaps playing on those 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 overseas or that overseas involvement um, recently with with the uh, coming of power of the Trudeau government, uh, Canada scaled back its activities in Syria, um, you know, ending the the uh, airstrikes commenced by the uh, Harper government. Um, now, some have taken issue to that and advocated, you know, perhaps for a return to a more direct or forceful role uh, in the coalition. But would you say that perhaps this is just an instance of Canada playing to its strengths? I think it's all about domestic politics and has relatively little to do with international relations. For one thing, I'm not sure that our six our six CF-18s were were the, the linchpin of the air effort. I think that they were there largely for political purposes and their removal is largely for political purposes. The The issue with the situation in Syria in relation to ISIS, and Syria and Iraq for that matter, it seems to me is less what's happening now and more what are we going to do when ISIS ends up collapsing, which uh, seems likely potentially in the near future. And so I like to talk a little bit about the analogy of a dandelion that's gone to seed and now you've kicked it. Uh, and so the dilemma has for a long time been about containment. Uh, not it's not, a, it's not necessarily a direct military challenge, ISIS, but rather containment of ISIS. And then the consequences thereafter of having successfully contained ISIS to the point where it collapses, what do you do with the tens of thousands of foreign fighters who then presumably are in some position to return to their countries of origin? That's going to be a tremendous dilemma in terms of our domestic security. More more generally, in terms of international security, you've created a vacuum. The The cause of ISIS is not uh, is, is not necessarily uh, cured if you defeat ISIS. And you have a situation in the Middle East of uh, a, a political vacuum in parts of the Middle East. And that issue then is how do you create a, a, a situation that doesn't then renew the prospect of some other insurgency, perhaps even a more vicious insurgency or even more destabilizing insurgency taking its place? So I, I don't purport to have an answer to that conundrum. And if I did, I probably wouldn't be sitting here. I'd be sitting somewhere else. Uh, and uh, and yet it's not necessarily something that uh, has been discussed with any degree of rigor, it seems to me, in the Canadian context. And a lot of the political debate has been more emotive than it seems analytical. So we need to participate in the coalition by using the CF-18s. And if we don't, then we're demonstrating ourselves both to be unwilling allies, or at least uh, perhaps unreliable allies, and or we're not showing sufficient uh, commitment to the cause. Well, again, the issue is less can we defeat ISIS militarily? I think collectively the capacity to do so is is unquestioning. The issue is what do we do after? And since we've not had that conversation, it seems to me that the, 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 everything else is theater. Mm. I think you've highlighted a good point there is, is how do we measure success in counterterrorism efforts? Um, like you stated, just the elimination of a group like Islamic State does not necessarily entail the end of terrorism. You know, new groups may rise in the vacuum. Um, therefore, do you believe that Canada should kind of just focus on more on containment and almost accepting terrorism as a fait accompli, as, as like the dangers will always exist? Should we kind of break away from this notion of, you know, always focused on total elimination uh, and perhaps try to adapt to the reality that terrorism is an enduring phenomenon? Um, I, I, it is an enduring phenomenon. And... <clears throat> You know, it's clear that if somebody ever says, whether politician or, or pundits, like, oh, you know, we should we should defeat terrorism in its entirety. It's it's very clear this person has never either understood terrorism or studied the history of terrorism. You know, terrorism is, is very multifaceted. From the perspective of real-time pressures on governments or agencies involved in, in counterterrorism and, and or counterinsurgency or multilateral operations in this area, one of the challenges is that the task initially set is often containment in terms of you need to stop this from getting worse. And that's not easy to do when you're operating in somebody else's country, even at their invitation and behest, and particularly when you're operating in a coalition environment. 
it's very easy for Canada to work with the US and the UK and the Australians. It's a bit more challenging to work with the Iraqis or the Afghans. And those are processes which take time. But then as you begin to have an effect on the ground, or you realize you're not having a, a, the net, the positive or envisaged effect on the ground, you have to change your approach. And then you have to, in one sense, because you're working in a coalition environment, you have to get many partners to move in this roughly the same direction who are not necessarily going to contradict each other in action or in, in word. And so from the perspective of governments trying to manage very complex issues from afar, it's difficult for them to focus on the assumption that, okay, two years down the line, we will defeat. Then we will begin and put in plans to have whatever the, the resolution will be. There's, there's clear that some thinking is occurring both within governments but equally in the public domain about after ISIS. And among the, the scholars and think tank community, there's a fairly clear strong line in that literature of we will be dealing with the outcome of this for at least another decade because it's after ISIS, eradicating ISIS will not end the Syrian civil war conflict. Many of those individuals who are foreign fighters, as Craig indicated, will either stay in theater, join another group, or will melt away. Hopefully some of them will simply melt away, go home, and no longer pose a danger. Some of them may melt away to other future theaters of conflict. And so you could see a potential pop-up of another mini kind of scenarios that we've seen emerging in different places across the world in the next two, three, five years. And so the, the problem from the, either the Canadian perspective or the U.S. perspective or others is we can dampen it down here in Syria, but the resolution to the issue is political, not military, but a recognition of we're probably going to be facing a similar environment in a different country in the next two, three, five years as well. This thing is definitely not going away. I, I would just add that I mean, it goes to your original question in, in terms of our ability to respond to terrorism that I think it has to be recognized that resilience is a component of grappling with terrorism and to the extent that every time there's an incident it becomes an existential crisis for a democratic society then the reality is that the democracy will overreact and the course of overreacting likely makes the situation worse. It also becomes extremely fraught if one or other political faction within that democracy decides that they're going to appropriate security as a a polemical or a partisan issue and use it then to pave their way to political power. That's dangerous because that will contribute then to the propensity to over-torque and exaggerate and will reduce resilience because there's an incentive then to create hysteria in the interest of marshalling political influence. Uh, that is extremely dangerous uh, from a security perspective and also from a civil society perspective. So we have to be aware of overreaction. The terrorism threat is not an existential threat. And so to the extent that those persons in government, in some instances, in some places, would have you believe that it's the most serious threat we face as a society, they exaggerate, and the exaggeration risks, it seems to me, an overreaction that makes the situation worse, not better. I, this is where I confess that, that my wheelhouse is, is more development-focused, but in talking about perhaps speculating the aftermath. You mentioned that, 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 that if ISIS were, were to be, quote-unquote, defeated and we have create a vacuum, is there any space in Canadian policymaking of linking some of our policies to combat terrorism with our development policy in terms of trying to make the environment in these countries more conducive to try and pacify some of the, the, the interests that might lead these fighters to, to, to take up arms? There is, and it's and it's fairly well established within the literature in terms of the, you know the broadly speaking the three D strategy. It involves defense, diplomacy, and development, and these things should work not necessarily in concert with each other in real time, but you should have an eye on the sense of okay, here's here is our security response, defense response to the threat, to contain it, roll it back, reduce it versus here is the diplomatic aspects of this where essentially within both counterterrorism and in counterinsurgency, you are attempting to peel away more moderate voices from hardcore elements who are never going to be satisfied. But you want to remove that pool of supporters or that pool that essentially allows them to swim in an environment. 
and part of the effort then to deal with that to up, up, up sort of up support or provide the foundations for that political buy-in of whatever the solution will be is of course the realities of most people's lives which is do they have jobs access to food water housing and the reality of key parts of what we would think about as human security the difficulty of course is these things are easy to explain on paper and they're easy to say we'll have a plan over the next few years but plans never survive contact with the enemy or contact with reality and while even Canada's good intentions and influence and leverage are worth pursuing you are still essentially talking about you cannot force another country to accept a political outcome Canada can't do that the US may have leverage in certain circumstances do so it's equally a recognition of while the effort and good intentions are there and we can certainly detect some good outcomes over a period of time Canada has limited real capability to offer major influence and outcomes in another country, which is why we often act in coalitions, in concert, through international organizations, because that's where we can play a, a better role and we can leverage our own skills and resources to best effect. The only thing I would add is I think we have to be uh, cautious about trying to find simple solutions to complex problems. And so part of this... Again, some of the pernicious political discourse, there's a, there's a contempt for talking about root causes. But there is some truth to the idea that, that uh, the, the socioeconomic variables are not necessarily directly linked to the incidence of terrorism. It's a much more complex phenomenon. And to some large degree, the social scientists have, tried, have given up on trying to explain what makes a terrorist a terrorist. So to the extent that we can't show cause and effect, it sometimes becomes very difficult then to preempt that cause and effect. Uh, and so political grievance actually tends to be discounted in favor of other more palatable reasons. But at the end of the day, political grievance, and if you look at the pattern, uh, grievance over foreign policy positions, for example, is part of the animating preoccupation that does drive persons into, for example, the embrace of groups like ISIS. It's not just the siren call of ISIS. There are those who have joined groups in Syria because they see themselves as fighting against a repressive regime, Assad's regime. Uh, and um, some of those persons uh, have, a, uh, have rejected the, the uh, Western foreign policy. So foreign policy and, uh, and political grievance can be an important variable that is not cured by providing substantial amounts of development assistance, for example. And it's, it's difficult because we sometimes don't want to acknowledge the ideological positions that sometimes motivate persons. But uh, if we discount them from our analysis, then it seems we risk simplifying the scenario more than it deserves to be. I, I, I wouldn't disagree with that. And I, I think it's important to understand that at the root of this are our political objectives and political grievances. Those grievances can be very real and other people can recognize them. Some of them can be perceived and difficult to understand beyond an individual's. But without wanting to necessarily defend Western states or Canada per se and say, you know, don't worry about it, um, to, to use the Syrian example, uh, and Craig's absolutely correct, some individuals have, have gone abroad, and we, we can see, clearly see this in the cases, either prosecuted in courts in Canada or, or elsewhere, where Canadian foreign policy objectives have, in one sense, tipped them over the edge in a rather simplistic way to explain it. So part of our thinking as a response to that may be, okay, maybe we need to think about our foreign policy. The other challenge, however, is that certainly at the beginning of the Syrian conflict, when we start to see the massive inflow of foreign fighters, one of the driving narrative rationales behind it was that we are getting involved in this. This is less on the Canadians. This is more from Europeans at this point in time. One of the driving rationales is you are not intervening and you're not going to stop Assad, so we need to do it. So it's, it's, it's a bit of a damned if you are involved on the ground, damned if you don't, come to the aid of what is perceived as the righteous side. Now, that's obviously a very simplistic rendition of a, of a complex national security problem. But it's hard for a country partly to recognize, is our foreign policy going to have an effect here that will have negative implications for us? But even if you recognize that, it's a difficult political decision to say, are we actually going to alter our foreign policy objectives, which might be strategically sound, they could be, of course, strategically unsound. But 
to be perceived, the risk of perception of you altered your foreign policy in the face of terrorism, which is political death mm. for any Western democratic government or opposition party. At least that's my view. Yeah, and that's exactly what happened in 2004 in Spain um, after the Madrid bombings, where there was a perception that the, the Terrorist Act was, was a, a, a definitive aspect of the ultimate electoral outcome in that case and the shift in foreign policy and the withdrawal of Spain from the coalition in Iraq. Uh, and, and I certainly wouldn't advance the argument that foreign policy should be driven by the by the propensity of certain persons to engage in politicized violence. Um, what I do uh, believe is important is for us to uh, recognize this as a potential ingredient and in trying to understand how we create then counter narratives and have uh, open discussions that, uh, that frankly acknowledge that this could be a consideration. So in terms of countering terrorism, part of it is a counter narrative. And to the extent that you deny that there are political and ideological issues in play, then it seems to me that you unilaterally disarm in the face of those political narratives. So to what extent would you say that Canada is currently involved in perhaps this, this kind of you know field? Uh, are, is the nation currently attempting to tackle these, these narratives in, in, in any sort of concrete way or well, I think we're crawling before before we're walking, right? So one of the frontier issues is what's known as counterviolent extremism or CVE. And uh, there are other countries that have uh, that have uh, wandered down that path a little bit further than we have. It's certainly on the agenda of the current government. Uh, what it means in practice, it's pretty much eye of the beholder in some instances. And it's not like there's a, a ready formula that one can follow in terms of uh, successfully countering a move from radicalization to outright at radicalization to violence. Uh, there are probably better practices in some instances than others, uh, and, and this might be an area where Jez and I will have an argument. I'm not a big fan of the UK approach, which is the uh, prevent uh, approach, which uh, in my view is overbroad and potentially uh, unduly alienating. Uh, because you need to develop relationships with the community. I, 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 this this shifts this shifts too far into the domestic discussion, which I know you want to talk about later. But it, it, a good proportion of of securing a society like Canada involves, for example, police developing relations with communities, and those communities being in a position then to alert police in circumstances where there's something amiss. And unless you develop those relations, then you risk that these things will go amiss without notification going to the police. And so it, it could be a simple, and this is a bit facetious, but the, 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 this goes back almost to the idea of community policing, that rather than police being in squad cars as alienated, disinterested uh, agents of the state, it means walking the beat, getting to know the people on the local corner. Uh, and some societies do a better job of that than others. Uh, and so I think uh, this is, for us, going to be uh, a new frontier, counterviolent extremism, and the current government's committed to it. We're waiting to see what it looks like in practice. Now, just for our listeners, could you give us an idea? You had mentioned the UK's use of, of uh, prevent strategies. Yeah, so the UK has, uh, has its counterterrorism strategy, what it refers to basically as contest, has different elements to it, uh, just as in one sense does Canada's counterterrorism strategy. And a portion of the UK is uh, strategy and indeed of Canada's is, is what is, we essentially think of as prevent. And prevent is attempting to uh, reduce the number, reduce the grievances, deal with individuals who may be drawn into or on the path of radicalization to violence, but have not yet crossed over into actual violence itself. So we think about it as, you know, essentially, you know, an ounce of prevention is better than the sort of, you know, having to think about the cure. The challenge for the UK context in its prevents program is that this started in 2006, really got, got off the ground in 2006. Um, and like everybody, they had to learn something new. And that resulted in a quite securitized approach to this that's, that didn't really break down the, the ideas or perceptions of it's us and it's them. Either, you know, in very simplistic terms, and I, I don't want to be overly critical of, of UK efforts here, but in simplistic terms, thinking about it is you're kind of either with us or you're against us, uh, mentalities. And in the review of Prevent that then occurred a few years after, there was a recognition of, okay, the, the ideas are good, but it's not working on the ground. We need different approaches here, a little bit softer, but we need to go a little bit deeper as well. But the UK then put in essentially what is a statutory requirement 
for frontline services like schools, um, like councils, etc., to be involved in preventing and countering extremism. And in some respects, this has resulted in some very good work where you've got, you know, social workers, police officers, teachers, and frontline communities working through potentially identification of problem cases, which then do get addressed. And you, you, you shift an individual who may be on a trajectory of violence. You shift them away from that. The other challenge, however, on that sign is it's seen by some elements as being too heavy-handed. And it's particularly, while the UK, as you would expect, is, is at pains to say we're not just focusing on Al-Qaeda-inspired or Islamic State-inspired terrorism, the focus has in some respects been on particular communities, Muslim communities, and you've alienated, in reality in some cases, it, you've alienated communities or sections of those communities who then view any connection to government counter-terrorism, counter-narrative activities as being you're spying on us, you're targeting us, and we are being essentially discriminated against. So there has been this alienation effect that's undeniable is, is a bit of a challenge or is a challenge to the UK context. And I, and I would add, I mean, the, the, other two is, the other issue is the overbreadth of what the UK is trying to prevent, to use the title of the program. It's not just violent extremism, but also they've singled out nonviolent extremism and indications that a person doesn't espouse British values, right? And so you get into these really difficult conversations about the extent to which prevent is about countering violent extremism and to the extent to which it's essentially some tool of espousing a majoritarian view of the world that uh, can be deeply alienating uh, to uh, other populations who are, are not necessarily inclined to violence or to terrorism but uh, do not necessarily line up in, in full accordance with, with these uh, benchmarks. Uh, and so I, I think from a civil libertarian perspective, the program is notorious. And to the extent that it, it resonates across the Atlantic, there's there's quite a sense in some civil libertarian communities that uh, that if you were to try to implement such a thing in the United States or Canadian context, you'd be confronted with a constitutional challenge in about two seconds flat because of its overbreadth. You know, I think that's excellent foreshadowing, talking about domestic policy. Um, excellent insight. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we will continue our discussion on terrorism and national security. You're listening to Policy Talks, recorded at CKCU 93.1 FM. For more, go to www.policytalkspodcast.com. We're back with our guests, Professors Jez Littlewood and Craig Forces. Uh, and diving back into our discussion, uh, we're talking now about domestic policies and, and how they relate to, to combating terrorism and, and ensuring national security. Um, and I think it's appropriate to lead off with uh, with a discussion of Bill C-51, um, legislation pertaining directly to this discussion. Um, I'd throw it to your expertise. Bill C-51, what, is, what, is what, what are the important pieces here? Why is this important for Canadians to know? What is the debate or debate surrounding this legislation? Um, and is this, is this legislation appropriate? Proportionally speaking, is this a proportionately appropriate legislation to be enacting, given our, our threats to security? I'm tempted to literally say to Craig, you wrote the book on this with Kent uh, Roach, because he did. Um, but before sort of, in one sense, deferring to, to Craig a little bit on, on this, one of the challenges in the C-51 discussion is that the idea of is it a proportional response was was lost in the presentation and the fact that the debate became very polarized. Uh, from a personal perspective, there are, there are aspects within C51, I think, are a necessary response or at least a necessary legislative effort to deal with the terrorism threat. Not all of it is good. The challenge is that the issue itself entail counterterrorism becoming very politicized and a partisan split within the House of Commons and an increase across society. 
And the government of the day, Prime Minister Harper's government, didn't help itself here because it essentially served up a lot of platitudes about terrorism and about counterterrorism that really would not stand up to any serious level of discussion or debate and put C-51 on the table in a kind of take it or leave it approach. And many individuals rejected it and are still adamantly opposed to C-51 and would like to see it completely taken off the statute books. The difficulty we face now is C-51 is enacted. The The current government is, of course, part of its election promise to deal with what it calls the problematic elements of C-51. But what we understand or think are the problematic elements of C-51 are probably quite different depending on who you talk to. Yeah, so C-51 has become sort of this, the, this, the uh, nomenclature has become an archetype for what people believe uh, is wrong or is not wrong with the prior government and with generally with Canadian counterterrorism. Uh, the details are often lost on people. I mean, it's important to remember that this was a very big bill. It's almost 100 pages long. It, it uh, included amendments to uh, over a dozen statutes and in- enacted two separate new statutes. And so it was what's known as an omnibus bill. There's a lot of moving parts in it. Very few people took the time to sit down and read it. And if they did read it, without doing all the cross-referencing to the amended statutes, they would have no idea what's going on. And so as a consequence, people formed opinions on the basis of what they heard rather than what they actually truly understood about the bill. And so there was actually a fair amount of misinformation, misinformation from both the government side and the non-government side. Now, the government, as Jez suggested, it did itself no favor in terms of the spin it adopted in relation to C-51. They both underclaimed in terms of what it would accomplish and overclaimed. Uh, and so w- those of us who spent some time on C-51 in, in, in the weeds, so to speak, looking at its details, I think probably I would take the view that there are two problems with the C-51 process. Uh, I think it underreacted to terrorism and at the same time overreacted to terrorism. And so to give you some indication of that, an underreaction, we had a commission of inquiry which ended in 2010 on the Air India bombing which made a host of recommendations designed to remedy what has historically been a problem with Canadian anti-terrorism, and the most important indication of which is the uh, arm's length and rather distant relationship between the RCMP and CSIS in terms of their capacity to collaborate on anti-terrorism. That was the, uh, the engine that drove the Air India failure, and it was one of the key recommendations of the Air India Commission, fix this. It's known as intelligence to evidence. The conundrum is the shorthand is intelligence to evidence. The government of the day, the Harper government, did nothing to fix it. And as a consequence, we're still burdened with the legacy of two separate services, the RCMP and CSIS, who conduct parallel investigations rather than joint investigations in relation to potentially the same targets and spend a lot of their time deconflicting their uh, operations. And there's some legal reasons for that, and there's also some cultural reasons for that, but neither are insurmountable. And it seems to me that unless we fix that problem, we risk a rerun of, uh, of Air India, not, not through inattention by the services, but just because this is an unwieldy system as compared, for example, to the system that exists in the UK. In terms of overreaction, uh, Kent Roach and I and, and at least some others took the view that C-51, for the most part, was trying to fix real problems. But the measures that they employed to do so were either uh, excessive in their scope, in other words, they used a sledgehammer when you needed a scalpel, or in relation to some of the provisions were largely incoherent to the point where you're left wondering how it will work in practice. Uh, Those were unnecessary. Both those flaws were unnecessary and were a product of a hurried legislative and highly politicized legislative process. So now with the passage of time and a slightly less heated period, we're in a position to renovate. I am not one of those who says, scrap C-51, throw it on the, on the, on the dump, uh, move along, because if we scrap C-51, we would still have to resolve the problems that C-51, however inadequately, was trying to address. And so to give you an example, information sharing. Information sharing between our services is vital. It's the oxygen of counterterrorism, uh, and we're notoriously poor at doing it. As the example, for example, of CSIS and RCMP that I gave you a moment ago suggests, it seems to me we need to slay that issue. The problem with the C-51 approach is that rather than curing the problem and overlaid a complex and unwieldy new statutory framework that uh, you can spend some time looking at and wonder how it's going to work, uh, igniting all sorts of concerns that it was overbroad in terms of invas- being invasive of privacy in circumstances where it didn't need to be. The other aspect that was quite notorious in C-51 was the so-called disruption powers of CSIS, actually called threat reduction. So CSIS is now more than a watcher, more than a surveillance organization. It can take measures against persons to reduce threats to the security of Canada. 
Well, the outer limit of what it can do is quite extreme, and so it can do anything up to bodily harm, obstruction of justice, or violation of sexual integrity. And in fact, it can breach Canadian law and breach the Charter of Rights if authorized by a secret federal court warrant. That is well beyond the range of anything that I think CSIS would reasonably want to do, uh, and is well beyond the range, in my view, of what's constitutional for it to do. And so this is an unnecessary constitutional crisis in some respects, and it's already before the courts. The, the, the court case is sitting there and w- awaiting some sense as to what the Liberal government will do with the bill. But this is an example of overkill in circumstances where a much more modest bill probably could have addressed the issue as what powers do CSIS need in terms of threat reduction without precipitating uh, constitutional conundrums. So would you say that perhaps this struggle to create effective policy is perhaps a reflection of just the complexity of the issue of domestic terrorism in, in the present day? And I'm thinking of, of, you know, kind of emerging threats, kind of these, these lone wolf attacks and... Uh, Perhaps in trying to quickly adapt and respond to these perceived threats, um, are we kind of just going too fast? And this is a reflection of just a a general misunderstanding of you know the level of threat and the 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 degree to which we need to you know proportionally answer it. I guess my response to that is I think that I, I don't discount the threat environment. I you know I think as I mentioned at the outset about the prospect of foreign fighters returning, this is a serious threat. So the statistics from 1980 to about 2010 said that about one in nine returned foreign fighters will engage in a domestic act of terrorism. It also said that those domestic acts of terrorism are more likely to be lethal because these persons come back equipped with new skills and aptitudes that they wouldn't otherwise have because they've been trained in a war zone. And so that's not an insignificant risk. In fact, that's probably the most serious risk we've confronted in a long time from a terrorism perspective. It's not an existential risk, but it is a serious risk. And so uh, I am not amongst those who discount the risk from terrorism, and I don't think the past is necessarily a preface to the future. So during the C-51 debate, a lot of people said, well, you're more likely to be killed by a moose in Canada because you run into them on the highway. That's actually statistically true, by the way, but that's not necessarily an indicator of what happens four or five down road, uh, years down the road. Nor, incidentally, is it the approach the government should take, <laughs> right? And so the, one of the classic roles of the state is to perform that night watchman role. Uh, and so these security issues are front and center. Uh, that said, the issue then becomes, how do we address these things intelligently? And so one of the problems, it seems to me, th- that we have in terms of counterterrorism is that we don't have a lot of literacy in this area. And by literacy, I mean expert knowledge. That's true within Parliament, which has been notoriously incapable of being effective on national security in large measure because it's excluded from access to secret information. Government itself tends to be siloed. And so you have these different departments of government which focus on their own little specific areas and don't necessarily cross-fertilize all that well. And so we end up with uh, a fairly chaotic response. And if that chaotic response is then ignited by events like in October 2014, followed then by a decision by the government in power to politicize the issue, you end up with essentially the message going out that we have to do something, anything. And it seems to me a lot of ideas that were probably in the bottom shelves of a lot of drawers around executive government come out and are dusted off and are packaged together without much strategic thought. And so one of the problems with Canadian anti-terrorism is it's a lot of tactics without a lot of strategy. Mm. I think one of the equal issues here is, for understandable reasons, we we tend to think that what is the threat based on what was the last incident or what is the thing that most people are talking about. So it's absolutely correct to say one of the bigger issues is the risk of, of lone actors. Um, and in one respect, one of the greater risks of turning lone actors towards violence is when we actually prevent them from traveling abroad, i.e. fulfilling their initial objective to go off and become a foreign fighter. Um, The other thing is, is of course, the returnees. But the threat environment, when the director of CSIS or the commissioner of the RCMP or others talk about a very diverse and dynamic threat environment, they're actually talking in anodyne terms about something that we do see across the literature or across the evidence. So, I mean, if you think about this in terms of we have lone actors, we have the risk of radicalization to violence, we have the risks of, uh, you know, communities turning a blind eye or being feeling that they're sort of ostracized or targeted. We have a risk of foreign fighters either going or returning. 
we have a risk uh, from the particularly the Canadian perspective, uh, running the risk of uh, what if U.S. individuals wish to seek or wish to escape the attention of the U.S. and they cross into the Canadian border or vice versa. So that creates a national dynamic. Uh, we have the risk of Canadians being uh, targeted abroad or Canadian interests being targeted abroad. So aside from that, then there's the, the whole cyber aspects to this is who is supporting communications, propagating ideas, which may not be illegal. And certainly we should allow space for sort of radical thought. But you can equally be how far are we allowed to go in terms of supporting or objecting to something, maybe raising funds in terms of materials for support. So there are lots of aspects to counterterrorism, which are not necessarily always in the public eye because it's not an actual case or an incident which people recall. And the challenge for the authorities, where I'm a little bit more open to the the ideas of thinking through C-51 and even some of the potential problematic elements of C-51, is that if a case was made that was looking out to this is a this is giving us the flexibility for how things may evolve in the next five to ten years or potentially five years i can see the logic behind some of the acts or some of the the operations or planned operations at the same time i i would agree with craig that certain portions of c51 were clearly at least in my own non-legal reading, as you took this as far as you possibly could, and there are gray zones there that worry even someone like me, uh, who is more inclined to think about what's the government's rationale behind this. And just broadly talking about Bill C fifty one or anything that everything that's in it, does this reflect, in your opinion, does this reflect an evolution in the Canadian mindset with regards to to? domestic security or national security policy? Is this, is this reflected uh, maybe a, a, a heightened level, a heightened feeling of, of, of threat? Or uh, would something like this, had it been introduced 10 years ago, would it have had the same, same reception? Well, it's all about politics. Yeah. All right, this was very clearly a government that was going into an election looking for a wedge issue, very consciously trying to wedge the Liberal Party. Uh, and and consequence was for the first time in Canadian political history using national security as a partisan issue, which is very distressing. And I, having participated in the process of appearing before the various committees, the Commons and the Senate, I will tell you it was the most acrimonious and unpleasant experience I've ever had in a policymaking situation because there was no ap- there was no appetite certainly at the Commons level especially there was no appetite to have a serious discussion. Uh, it was theater, pure and simple, uh, and that is extremely distressing. Uh, because uh, we all live in a society and we want, we want our government to do the best job possible in terms of securing that society while keeping it as uh, free and, uh, and, and uh, viable from a rights perspective as possible. This was not a serious conversation. And so the temperature is now turned down. Uh, the government has issued its green paper. I have concerns about the green paper. I'm, I, I don't agree with some of the positions articulated in the green paper. I have concerns about where we'll end up in the green paper. But at least we're having a conversation about real things as opposed to the mythology that was part of the debate over C-51. Uh, so you ask the question, would this have happened 10 years ago? Well, no, because this was a particular political moment. Does it reflect an evolution in the Canadian thinking about security? I don't think so. I think it reflects a particular point in political time. Uh, if it were reflecting the evolution of Canadian security, then it would have reflected the recommendations of the Arar Commission or the recommendations of the Air India Commission, which were protracted and detailed policy work examining remain, uh, enduring features of Canadian national security and, and their deficiencies, which remain, incidentally, intact, uh, even post-C51. Uh, right? So it was not a deliberative policymaking exercise. So we should understand it more as an instance of just co-opting terrorism for political purposes, kind of securitizing the issue and taking it too far? I... <laughs> Yes, but that's a little bit too simplistic for, mm. for, for my, in one sense, comfort zone. Certainly C-51, you know, we, that bill would not have seen the light of day or been given legislative time by the previous government had, of course, we not experienced the two attacks in October 2014. I think that political context is very clear. 
at the same time, it was a very politicized debate. I, I fully agree here with, with Craig having watched it and, and been on the sidelines of some of it is this was a very divisive partisan discussion debate where people didn't want to agree. They simply wanted to use it as a proxy to score political points for a pending election. But it's equally important to understand, as, as Craig indicated um, a few minutes ago, that it's an omnibus legislation. So portions of that were clearly brought, were semi-prepared or ready to go and to deal with some very real challenges in a counterterrorism environment and equally some very real challenges in a national security environment beyond counterterrorism. The, chale the challenge now for the government of the day is at one level... You, they've made this promise, we're going to deal with the problematic elements. But if you ask the different portions of the, problem, uh, the population what the problematic elements are, they take very different views. And this is clearly reflected in an appalling release yesterday um, by Angus Reid. The headlines in, in the newspapers were in the sense of talking about, you know, Canadians want uh, immigrant communities, newcomers, to be a little bit more assimilated into, into society. Hidden away in portions of that polling are, are a couple of questions related to terrorism and civil liberties and the national security discussion. And in both cases, you see there's almost really a split between the population. 55% are in favor of maybe giving up some aspects of civil liberties and rights in favor of a national security environment, but 45% are dead set against it. And the government now has to deal with some very real legislation problems as well as some very real political perception and population perception issues. Well, thank you for that, professors. I think that's all the time we have. Um, thank you for listening to Policy Talks. Stay tuned for our next episode where we will be discussing the attempts for peace uh, between FARC and Colombia. So remember to visit us at policytalkspodcast.com and on Twitter at policytalkspod for updates and related content. If you have any feedback, comments, or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email or reach us on Facebook or Twitter. And of course, uh, as always, uh, the uh, the presentation of this episode, so Matt and I and our, and our wonderful guests, is, is really the tip of the iceberg. A lot of work goes into these episodes, and we'd like to extend a, a, a big thank you to our research team who has put this episode together, starting with... Uh, with Matt, double-dipping as researcher and co-host today, as well as uh, Bridget Healy, Devin Wallenius, and, of course, our wonderful producer, Joe Venkatesh. Until next time, I'm Mitch. And I'm Matt. This is Policy Talks. Policy Talks.